This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which is currently running its annual holiday sale. All Haymarket Books are 40% off until January 3rd, including gifts for all the Reds on your list. One book that you might like is The Border Crossed Us, The Case for Opening the U.S.-Mexico Border by Justin Ackers Chacon. Contemporary North American capitalism relies heavily on an interconnected working class which extends across the border. Cross-border production and supply chains, logistics networks, and retail and service firms have aligned and fused a growing number of workers into one common class, whether they live in Mexico or the U.S. But while money moves without restriction, the movement of displaced migrant workers across borders is restricted and punished. Trans-border people face walls, armed agents, detention camps, and a growing regime of repressive laws that criminalize them. Despite the growth and violence of the police state dedicated to the repression of trans-border populations, however, migrant workers have been at the forefront of class struggle in the United States. This timely book persuasively argues that labor and migrant solidarity movements are already showing how and why, in order to fight for justice and rebuild the international union movement, we must open the border. As Harsha Walia puts it, The Border Crossed Us is a meticulously researched manifesto on the U.S.-Mexico border. Justin Akers Chacon masterfully exposes how capital mobility necessarily criminalizes the movement of labor, and, with radical and urgent clarity, he calls on all of us to strengthen the movement to open the border. The Border Crossed Us by Justin Akers Chacon. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A friend and past Dig guest texted me after last week's show, quote, It's amazing how much Brazil is America. And indeed, learning more about Brazil helps me better understand the United States more than any other country that I study. Today's episode is a second episode on Brazil, but by no means just Brazil, with political theorist Rodrigo Nunes. We are discussing Bolsonarismo, the ideology and politics surrounding far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. And, in doing so, we're also talking about far-right politics in the United States and elsewhere. Specifically, we discuss how neoliberal conditions create popular constituencies— ideologies, and subjectivities among poor and working-class people for a violent, mean, and repressive neoliberalism, and how those reactionary politics from below converge with those generated from above. Unfortunately, as conditions get worse, the far right speaks to people's dystopian reality in a dystopian language that, in the absence of a utopian left horizon, often makes all too much sense. Our task is to articulate that horizon and build the organized power necessary to move toward it. If you haven't yet, I'd suggest also listening to our last episode, my big picture interview on Brazilian politics with sociologist Sabrina Fernandez and historian Andre Pagliarini. In other news, if you depend on the dig for ruthless criticism of all that exists, I have a question. Do you support the dig at patreon.com slash the dig? I know it is rather easy to tune these sorts of appeals out, 
Believe it or not, I myself have tuned out such solicitations. Total and repugnant hypocrisy on my part. But please, dear listener, know this. Every donation, even a few bucks a month, really does add up to making this show possible. We put out every episode with no paywall so that everyone can listen to this podcast, regardless of your ability to pay. But we can only do that because those of you who can afford to contribute even just $5 a month do so. Chip in. I get an email notification every time a new person supports the podcast, and each and every email really does warm my heart. But perhaps more important to you than my heart temperature is the fact that a donation of any size means that you will receive our newish and very excellent weekly newsletter emailed directly to your inbox. Donate $10 or more a month, and we will send you a book or books, a tote bag, or a coffee mug. So, please take a quick moment to support the podcast that you depend on at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Rodrigo Nunes, a professor of modern and contemporary philosophy at the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro, PUC Rio, and the author of Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, a theory of political organization, which just came out earlier this year from Verso. I will link to some of Rodrigo's recent work that we're discussing in this episode in the show notes. Rodrigo Nunez, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. You write in Radical Philosophy, quote, We should not speak as if there were a pre-existing movement to which some groups latched onto in 2018, but rather think of what happened as the confluence of different vectors from above as well as from below that already had much in common. Why is it, whether we're talking about penal populism or neoliberalism, that such similar forms of politics emerge from above and below? Why was it Bolsonarismo that had the power to facilitate this convergence of right-wing ideologies that continue to serve different roles for different classes. So what I meant by that sentence was precisely that you had several tendencies within, within Brazilian society that, to a good extent, at least some of them would be natural allies, and they had been gravitating towards one another, for some time, also to to a good extent, in response to the electoral hegemony of the left or center left during the PT years, but it was only under the Bolsonaro presidential candidacy in two thousand and eighteen that all those things clicked together. So, on the one hand, you have this. Um, suture from from above that ties things together and it's given by politics. You know, it's very, as you would find in Laclau's and Mouffe's accounts of how politics works. But on the other hand, you, you can't deny that there was already a strong elective affinity among those elements and that they had already been gravitating towards one another for a while. Now, so from from above and from below in this case means 
from below what's happening in society and how all those different social trends are moving and connecting to one another. And from above means from the sphere of institutional politics, from the sphere of what Mario Tronti would have called the, the autonomy of the political, which precisely this example shows is always uh, only a, a relative autonomy. But obviously, this combination of from above and below also applies to um, the way in which these different trends in themselves and then the way that they connect in Bolsonarismo connect different classes and different social groups and can connect the very the country's very elite to the popular classes. And a good example of that is the way that neoliberal discourse has worked within this arrangement or this uh, constellation of elements. Because you have a strong resurgence of neoliberal discourse from, say, 2014 to 2018 in Brazil, which was fruit of a very targeted organization and agitation by a bunch of, of uh, foundations and institutions and uh, political groups that were created explicitly with that purpose of uh, agitating in favor of neoliberal ideas. For a while during the hegemony of PT, during the, the Lula years and uh, the beginning of uh, Dilma Rousseff's government, it looked like neoliberalism had become completely toxic in Brazil. Like if, if you wanted to make someone lose an, an election, what you would say is this person is going to privatize public services. And that was a really damaging thing to say. And suddenly neoliberal discourse or uh, like a, an even more extreme form of market libertarianism than we had had in Brazil in the 90s came back because of this very concerted effort. But they didn't have a strong candidate for the 2018 elections. At the same time, the, the crisis, the, um, the economic crisis that began in 2015 was really damaging for a, a kind of um, what you could call popular entrepreneurialism that had flourished during the Lula years because the economy was booming, people had money, there was a, a, a growing internal market. So that was a huge boon to popular entrepreneurialism. And that was something that was like very heavily incentivized by uh, the PT governments. When the economic crisis hits, all those people are left in the lurch and suddenly they find in this resurgence of neoliberal discourse, which was happening in the Brazilian, among the Brazilian elite and uh, the middle class, they find a sort of explanation for what was happening. You know, it, it so happened that the economic crisis began at the same time as a huge corruption scandal. So that created an association in everyone's heads that, well, the, 
the economic crisis was caused by corruption and that opened the door for this Hayekian uh, discourse that basically equates the very idea of social justice to a form of uh, corruption or to a form of bribery through which governments buy off various uh, social groups, offering them special treatment. And so poor people who had invested in creating their own small businesses uh, during those years, suddenly they found in in this discourse an explanation to the situation that they were finding themselves in. And that created the condition for an alliance from what we could describe using uh, Veronica's, Veronica Gago's uh, work, a form of new liberalism from below, whereby like, poor people start to come to uh, adopt a certain neoliberal frame to think their own economic strategies and their own uh, life strategies in a terrain that's been heavily reconfigured by neoliberalism and a resurgent neoliberalism from above that had been uh, fostered by these uh, para-academic institutions and uh, political groups like uh, Movimento Brasil Livre, Free Brazil uh, movement, which became huge after the 2013 surfed on the wave of the 2013 protests and then became huge afterwards. Before we get into more specifics about Brazil, is it fair to say that any functional hegemonic ideology always includes buy-ins or inputs, or I'm not sure the right way to put it, from both above and below, and perhaps the more from below the more stable the hegemonic ideology? I'd, I'd say definitely yes for the first part or to, to the first question. I mean, definitely you need, in order to, to have something that is um, successful in attracting broad social base, you need that capacity to speak or to at least sound like you're speaking, like you're addressing the concerns and anxieties and uh, aspirations of different parts of different sectors of society. And in relation to the second question, I think you're probably right also in the sense that the more a dominant ideology manages to address the preoccupations of uh, the majority of the, the population, i.e. the poorest or the, the popular classes, as we would call them in Latin America, the more stable the consent on which it can count will tend to be, and the less it is capable of uh, addressing those concerns the more it is likely to eventually have to uh, rely on force, retain their hegemony and to keep people in line with what they're doing. And I would say here there is definitely a contradiction in in the horizon and in the not-too-distant horizon. In fact, we could say it's already here now. 
between neoliberalism from above and neoliberalism from below in Brazil. Because neoliberalism in the 90s in, in Brazil and in Latin America as a whole did have a sort of modernizing momentum to it in the sense that you were dealing with these lumbering, badly designed, highly corrupt state apparatuses that the um, the transformation of which was very likely to have uh, a, a positive or to have several positive uh, effects in the way of, um, in the sense of liberating uh, economic forces that were um, being uh, held back by, you know, these Frankenstein monsters that had been built through populism, but then also uh, through military dictatorships and so on. That is now gone, I think. And the tendency now, especially now that the tendency is increasingly for neoliberalism uh, from above to be a, a more and more extreme form of ultra-liberalism or of extreme market libertarianism, the tendency now is for that to only uh, exasperate the pre-modern aspects of Latin America uh, society that follow from extreme inequality. So there is a contradiction here in the sense that not only has that modernizing capital mostly been spent already in uh, the 90s, but actually the tendency, if you if you follow what these people are preaching, the tendency is to just exacerbate the inequality and the, the two-tier citizenship arrangements that are what's most, what's sadly most characteristic, but also what's most archaic about Latin America. And neoliberals in, neoliberals in general, I think, are very, and particularly the ones in Latin America are very brazen, are very shameless when it comes to, you know, when something they do doesn't work, they immediately explain it as not having really been liberalism. So the the support for um, Macri, uh, Argentina's former president in Brazil, was, is a perfect example of that. He was the darling of Brazilian neoliberals, neoliberals until his government went very badly and then Brazilian neoliberals were all going, well, he wasn't, he wasn't ever really a liberal. So they, they will always do that and dissociate themselves from the disasters that they create. And this move could work again in Brazil. So it's not a given that this will work in the left's favor, but there's definitely an opportunity for the left because the effects are already being, can already be seen in Brazil. Like, and, and obviously they'll be able to point to the uh, pandemic as being something that hindered their plans, etc. but poverty has been going up. Inequality has been going up. Hunger, the, the number of people going hungry has been going has gone up dramatically in the last few years, all in the the context of uh, five years of neoliberal reforms that were always promised 
as, you know, this is going to create more jobs, this is going to make the economy uh, boom. The economy has tanked, unemployment is still high, and the, the quality of jobs that have been created is is very low. So, you know, at some point, the credit runs out. And, and I think this, it's not going to take long for that to happen. So there's definitely, there's definitely when that happens, and it's, I think, already starting to happen, there will definitely be an opportunity for the left there again. There are not yet or maybe impossible to reconcile contradictions in terms of the ideological convergence of neoliberalism from above and from below because they had a formally shared diagnosis of the problem at one time. But now that the purveyors of neoliberalism from above are actually running the economy and running society, running politics, um, it's that creates a problem. If if we think one of them, if if we consider that one of the main elements of neoliberalism from below is what I was describing as um, popular entrepreneurialism, eventually it becomes clear to people that that was made possible because there was there was strong state intervention to produce um, to redistribute uh, wealth to strengthen the internal market, to give more rights and um, guarantees to labor, etc. So people actually understand, oh, right, when neoliberalism from above is talking about creating uh, a level playing field, actually this is just the plain old inequality that we had before. And that brings us to something you gestured at before, which is, how neoliberal ideology was somehow nurtured under a left government. And as you mentioned, Argentine sociologist Veronica Gago coined this concept, neoliberalism from from below, a process whereby informalization of work, precarization of life, everything, all the features that we all know very well of the neoliberal hellscape that we live under, nurtures amongst poor and working class people, also middle class people, an entrepreneurial mindset where the hustle to survive is seen as the logical order of the universe, not without reason, because it certainly appears to be so, because it, because it is. And it's a mindset that informs what people think is necessary to succeed on a personal level. But then that also, and, and it is logically what it takes to succeed on a personal level often, but that also, of course, forecloses any systemic critique of oppression, exploitation, broader systems of domination. And so it's very obvious how neoliberal immiseration and precarity helped shape this sort of ideology, but what role was played by the Workers' Party's own governance, it's, as particularly its model for anti-poverty and economic redistribution, so-called inclusion through consumption? For as long as Brazil exists, it may not be that much longer, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> But we can put bets on which country ends first, mine or yours. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a tough one. Um, but for as long as Brazil exists, I think, and for as long as the left in Brazil exists, we're going to be doing post-mortems of the of PT uh, years or the, the period that went from Lula's first term to um, Duma Rousseff's second term, which was interrupted by a very questionable impeachment. 
and this is definitely one of the elements that's that's always gonna uh, come back in people's analyses. Even even if you know we compared the way that Bolsa Familia, which was the the biggest um, wealth um, wealth distribution program during under PT, if we compare the way it was designed to the way that um, the policies that Bolsonaro is trying to implement are designed, we will still recognize that oh wow they they were much better uh, they. They, they actually were good in their own way, but the original ideas uh, that had been proposed lay a lot more emphasis on using, let's say, using those um, wealth transfer programs to build and strengthen citizenship. So there, there was this idea that this is not just giving people people money, this is also a sort of political education. And that was, a lot of that was abandoned very early on. And certainly in official discourse, it increasingly became less and less important. And the emphasis was all placed on, you know, isn't it great that now you can, you can have, you can buy your own car. Uh, There was a strong incentive to the the auto industry in that period, which obviously was a very bad move from the environmental from the environmental point of view, but also from the point of view of public transport and um, quality of life in cities generally. Uh, and there was this overall emphasis in, oh, isn't it great that now you can buy your own car, you can have a motorbike, you can have a barbecue with your friends every every weekend, so on and so forth. And and so the there was the all the discourse on on citizenship and rights fell by the wayside while what was really emphasized was consumption, that dignity comes from the capacity to consume. One effect of that, a very direct effect of that was once the the economic crisis hit in 2015 and people couldn't consume anymore, they started turning against PT because, you know, the, the one thing that had been held up as this a sphere from which they could draw their sense of dignity and worth was taken away uh, from them. And so that was one of the reasons why lots of, uh, as some uh, ethnographies of Bolsonaro voters pointed out fairly early on, lots of people who had been PT voters some of which, many of which would have maybe voted for Lula if Lula had been, uh, had managed to, to run. These people turned to Bolsonaro in the elections, which is very indicative of the fact that there wasn't the success of those uh, wealth transfer programs didn't create a corresponding level of political awareness and a sense of, you know, 
this is a, a state's policy rather than um, the policy of this or that government and, um, you know, what are the political choices that are compatible with the continuity of this kind of state policy, so on and so forth. Stepping back from Brazil, is this a problem particular to Brazil, or does it tell us something about the limits and contradictions of left governance under capitalism generally everywhere throughout history? Because it sounds to me quite a lot like the history of the United States in terms of the contradictions of the New Deal order and how they've played out in a way that's been absolutely definitional to the last, I don't know, 70, 80 years of this country. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. If you read some something like um, uh, Adam Brzezowski's study of um, the history of um, social democracy, it's very clear that this is uh, a um, constituent problem of uh, social democratic left, uh, of, of social democratic politics, uh, sorry. And yeah, there is, there is some extent to which it is unavoidable. And that sort of confusion between the, the citizen and the consumer, the individualization of politics is something that is going to address people's problems individually rather than as a class or as a social group or as a, a collective of some kind is inevitable under capitalism. It can be counteracted by different forms of political education, which can, I believe, potentially be built into the design of public policies. But I think in the long run, these tendencies win. If you don't, if you're not ready to shake things up from, from time to time, and if you're not open also to the challenges that are coming from new social subjects and trying to respond to those in ways that um, transform those uh, policies and take them in new direction, it's kind of inevitable that sort of inertia will win in the end. I think the frustration that people had in, in the case of PT was that they didn't try from the start. They never, they never tried very hard to counteract those tendencies. Yeah. Uh, ideologies are not materially entirely determined, obviously, but at the end of the day, they are materially grounded. And so the challenge seems to be what sort of reforms create a material basis for more radical ideologies to emerge from those reforms, even though we're talking about social democratic reforms under capitalism, instead of reforms that create a material basis that foster reactionary ideologies. And I wonder if this doesn't make the case for universal basic services over universal basic income as a social democratic reform. I've been, I've been thinking, I was actually talking in my graduate course that I'm doing uh, this time. This was one of the subjects on which I was teaching just uh, last week. And yeah, for a long time, I think since um, the 2000s, with the early 2000s, when I 
first heard the case for universal basic income, I I was convinced very quickly, and and uh, I I thought for a long time I thought yeah this makes perfect sense. But recently I've I've tended and perhaps in part precisely because of this experience of living in in Brazil through this period of PT electoral or the center-left electoral hegemony, but also seeing what's happened in other Latin American um, countries that also had, also had left-leaning governments that were quite successful in the, the same period. Perhaps because of this uh, experience, among other things, I've started to think, yeah, maybe, maybe there is a limit uh, there, and you know, going back to the less fashionable, more old school idea of no, just basic services for everyone for free, uh, just socialize as much as you can the the costs of social reproduction and make that into a value. Maybe in terms of how that how that uh, objective transformation connects to uh, a subjective transformation, it's true that it can lead in a more radical, or it, it lends itself to them being used as a basis for more radical uh, forms of politics. I've never been like anti-UBI. I'm not, I'm by no means against putting cash into people's hands. The The issue is the way that politically can function, especially if it substitutes for universal basic services as a model for social democratic reform under capitalism, because its political function in that case is akin to that of voucherization in either the pub as an alternative to public housing or voucherization as an alternative to public schools. Yeah, exactly. And I think the fear that many people have is that uh, concerning campaigning for UBI is that it could, we could turn out, you know, once it gets to how this is going to be, let's say we, we actually build uh, sufficient support for it, when it gets to actually deciding how this is going to be implemented, depending on the balance of forces, not just in society in general, but in institutions, it could end up being uh, that we just shoot ourselves in the foot because we've built support for a policy that in the way that it's going to be implemented is actually going to take us in the opposite direction of where we wanted to go precisely because it's going to be used in, in that way. Returning to Brazil, in the case of the convergence of penal populism from above and from below, you write, quote, the difference is obvious. For those living in dangerous areas, the hankering for unrestrained state violence supposes a clear demarcation between the working people and the criminals in the neighborhood, with some collateral casualties in between. For those in well-off areas, policing is about protecting them from the poor, making the gray zone of potentially disposable life much larger. How did these two forms of penal populism emerge and then converge? And earlier you pointed out that there was 
there were some impossible-to-reconcile contradictions between neoliberalism from above and from below. Has the combination of penal populism been a, a neater and more seamless one, or does it likewise contain contradictions that have yet to be resolved or maybe just, just can't be? Well, to, to start with the first part, how did this coming together take place? Here, I think the work of Laclau and Mouffe can be quite useful. I, I, tend to, I tend to think that it's not useful in all situations, but in this particular situation, I think it, it is quite useful in the sense that you could say that to a good extent, um, the connection between the two, between penal populism from above, from above and, and below, uh, is large, largely rhetorical. And it hinges on ideas such as impunity. So there's too much impunity. And this can mean both that there's too much impunity for um, white-collar crime, but it can also mean that, oh, the the police should just shoot to kill. And one word which I mention in in this radical philosophy article, which is um, mamata, which comes from mamar to suckle. So mamata is like a, would mean like an, an undue privilege. And it's a word that's like a, used- Like a, 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 paras- a parasite of sorts. Yeah. So the parasite is someone who enjoys mamata or someone who has this sort of privilege that they they don't uh, deserve because it's it's a sort of dependency of a of a baby who's being breastfed but who is an adult and thus has no legitimate right to to such dependency yeah 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 i i guess one word that would be more or less in the same uh semantic field in english would be uh molly coddling or moocher this idea that you're treating someone as a baby yeah you're giving someone special treatment there was something that was said a lot during the campaign by Bolsonaro and by uh, his voters. In fact, in the week before the second round of the, the elections, there was, or the two weeks before the second round of the elections, there was this wave of uh, homophobic attacks all over Brazil. And one thing that uh, homophobic and transphobic attacks and one thing that was recurrent in in the accounts of these attacks was that the people doing the attacks would use this word. They would say "amamata uh, so the the your, the privilege is over, or the, the your privilege is going to end, uh, or the molly coddling is going to end, which shows quite clearly that this word this word could mean absolutely anything. It could mean white-collar crime and punity. It could mean uh, the high salaries of judges and politicians. Or it could mean uh, affirmative action at universities. Or it could mean policies to protect uh, LGBTQ people and, and so on and so forth. So here you can, you can see how, this, how these words function precisely because of how vague they are and that 
power to address lots of different sources of discomfort that people might have. They, pre- they can produce these uh, coming together of these very different social positions. Having said that, there is a deeper connection. Brazilian society is, for several reasons, several historical uh, reasons, very authoritarian. Also, like most Latin American countries, a place in which the armed forces have played an important role in public life throughout uh, history, particularly the Republican history of um, Brazil. But also, it's a very unequal, originally uh, slaveholding society where equality before the law is not guaranteed. So full citizenship tends to be understood not as equality before the law, but as a form of privilege. To be a full citizen, to be treated as a full citizen is a privilege. So the, the guaranteed exercise of rights depends on one's social standing. And punishment, on the other hand, is only guaranteed for people whose social status doesn't exempt them from observing the same rules as everyone else. So it, that creates a situation in which order, the, the maintenance of order, is seen as something that is above and, if necessary, against the law. And the demand for justice is confused with special treatment for those who deserve and the suspension of rights for those who don't deserve justice. So there is this idea that justice is not treating people equally, but it's giving special treatment to those who deserve it, giving a, especially giving a special negative treatment to those who are seen as not deserving and obviously the right to decide who deserves and who's, who doesn't is put in the hands of a judge or ultimately in the hands of a cop uh, who's going to decide on the spot if someone does or does not deserve to live. And Bolsonaro absolutely embodies this confusion between punitivism and permissiveness. He's at once the strict disciplinarian that comes from uh, the army and is going to put an end to Mamata. And he is the common man who understands that there are just too many laws and just too many rules getting in, in the way of the upstanding citizen. So one thing that's really strong in, that creates really strong identity between him and his base is his obsession with um, traffic regulations and how, as in abolishing <laughs> traffic regulations as much as possible, because that is seen, that is posed by him and seen by the Bolsonaro base as this absurd interference in your private sphere as a car owner and someone who just should just be entitled to enjoy the property of their vehicle. But also his, uh, he has a personal vendetta against the main uh, environmental control 
agency because he was once fined for fishing in a <laughs> in a protected area. And since he's he's been president, he's attacked this this public organ again and again. Obviously, that's connected to his agenda, to the government's agenda in the Amazon. And an element that he absolutely doesn't hide is a personal vendetta uh, against this. And that idea, that idea is absolutely, you know, that sense that making it in the world is getting to the point where your rights are always valid, but the laws don't necessarily apply to you if you step outside of them. The idea that this is what making it in Brazilian society means is absolutely widespread, as is the idea that order, the maintenance of order, that laws can be for that very reason, that this is how people imagine uh, society or envision society as working. The idea that laws can be an obstacle to the maintenance of order. And if laws get in the way of maintaining order, then you should just step outside the law and maintain order by whatever means. The way this, the figure of the mamata can describe everyone from like a welfare recipient and the racialized beneficiary of affirmative action to a corrupt elite businessman and politician, that seems so important for understanding how all of these various reactionary ideologies from above and below converge. I think the same thing's been evident in the United States with right-wing populism, where looking back a little over a decade, we see a backlash against a bank bailout after the financial crisis really quickly with the Tea Party become an attack on irresponsible homeowners facing foreclosure who are asking the taxpayer for a bailout that they don't deserve. And the two figures of both the greedy banker relying on a bailout, something that actually happened, and the irresponsible homeowner facing foreclosure, asking getting a bailout from the taxpayer, something that didn't really happen at all, that these two figures become morally identical and functionally identical in in the right-wing populist worldview. I think that's that's a key thing that happens. Yeah. I mean, neoliberalism has a very strong, um, which is one of one of the reasons for its elective affinity with conservatism. It has a really strong moral grammar, which is based on ideas of uh, sacrifice and uh, anyone who's not ready to make sacrifices should be punished, etc. And yeah, this was absolutely evident after in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis same thing in what happened in europe with greece where suddenly uh the problems with greek banks was turned into you know the the reason for that is that greek people just love sitting in their squares and drinking coffee and playing chess all day shameful behavior Yeah, that's obviously that's just Northern Europe being jealous of the Mediterranean, but couched in moral terms. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. 
The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. Alex Hochuli has called Bolsonaro the embodiment of what he calls an anti-politics that pervades Brazil. Do you agree? And either way, what is anti-politics? Is anti-politics just another name for neoliberal ideology in an age when neoliberal ideology can no longer articulate any sort of utopian or plausibly utopian promise? Um, I, I think we can understand anti-politics in two different ways, which are obviously connected, but also the connection of which we should be, connection between which we should be wary of. Uh, I'd say the first meaning of anti-politics is the neoliberal voiding of politics in favor of management, the... Um, encasement of the economy, to use uh, Quinn Slobodian's term, encasement of economic mechanisms and institutions in such a way that you uh, exclude certain substantive questions, for example, of distributive justice from political debate. So that would be anti-politics, the way in which, yeah, certain options just are just completely taken out, are taken off the table, and then political debate actually becomes about very little and mostly about the about the technocratic details of how you're gonna service a market economy and hopefully trying to avoid uh, most people dying in the process. But then there's another sense in which we could understand anti-politics as being the reaction to a political system that has been voided in this way and turned into a competition between self-serving technocratic elites that all appear to stand pretty much for the same set of interests and have very little between them that would allow us to differentiate them I would say Bolsonaro definitely definitely embodies the second, but his coalition embodies an alliance of the two meanings of the word. And as we were saying before, one of new liberalism's greatest strengths is the capacity it has to feed off the crises and the, the problems and sometimes the disasters that it creates. And 
what we're seeing today with the alliance between neoliberalism and the far right, which is at least half of the explanation as to why the far right is resurgent all over the world, is that it has the de facto support of uh, neoliberals. What we're seeing in this case is the second sense of anti-politics, which could be described as a, a perfectly reasonable response to decades of neoliberal uh, hegemony uh, and the absolute uh, dominance of anti-politics in the first sense. We're seeing this uh, frustration, this discontent being repurposed in uh, the interest of entrenching precisely the economic conditions that created the crisis that led to this, these sentiments of frustration and discontent in the first place. So what we're seeing is a further encasement of the economy through this alliance between neoliberals and the far right. But in the name of responding to this feeling that the system is rigged, that they're all the same, that our lives are in the hands of uh, a bunch of technocrats that have no concern for common folk, folk, so on and so forth. Thinking back to my interview with, with Wendy Brown, she uses Herbert Marcuse's concept of repressive desublimation to explain this emergence of nihilism. I think that was always latent and present within neoliberalism, but has now become its sort of governing ideology. Neoliberalism, the the will to power under neoliberalism, liberated from its superego and just a thrill to the violence and domination and power of the of the reigning order, which I don't know, like kind of like minus all the all the pretense that accompanied neoliberalism's optimistic early advertising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is a paragraph in, uh, or a couple of paragraphs in this radical philosophy article that then uh, got their own spin-off. And <laughs> I gave them their entire, I gave those paragraphs their entire, an entire text uh, afterwards. About deni- denialism? Exactly, which uh, came ended up coming out before the the, the article on uh, radical philosophy in um, public books, and in that text, when I was talking about uh, denialism in the context of uh, Bolsonarismo, and later expanded on it in this public books essay, I was trying to propose an interpretation of something that I don't think gets enough attention in the far right, which is the way that far right conspiracy, conspiracies offer, they kind of offer a, an alternative, distorted, funhouse mirror version of the crises of late capitalism that we in the left are talking about. So most of our talking points have their own bizarro world version in um, far-right 
conspiracies. And my hypothesis was that we should understand far-right denialism in, um, you know, the de- denialism in the stricter sense of, say, climate denialism in the context of denialism as a much broader uh, phenom- phenomenon that actually has to do with a growing demand for accounts that sustain the possibility of denial of our present conditions. So people sense the increasing fragility of the economic, political, territorial, uh, geo-biophysical arrangements that we live in. They sense something bad brewing in the horizon. And the far right responds to this with stories that at once speak to this anxiety, but also displace this anxiety onto other objects like, you know, migrants, feminists, woke culture or cancel culture, gender ideology, so on and so forth. And what they do in doing so is to offer a kind of anti-systemic politics for people who don't really think the system could change. You know, if you if you kind of naturalize the idea that inequality will continue to rise, nothing will be done about climate change, the democratic deficit in institutions will not be closed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Resources will become scarcer, competition will become more cutthroat. So what do you do? And what the far right is telling people is you strike first. You strike at those people who will compete against you uh, for the scraps that are left. And you have, you're entitled to strike against these people because, you know, what the far right say is it is their fault in, in the first place that all of these things are happening. They are creating these uh, worsening conditions for you. And again, in that sense, I think uh, far-right politics, and, and I think this must be stressed, is a perfectly rational response to a world of diminishing expectations. And I think maybe we, we can see this in the way that it seems that the, the right has started to pivot from straightforward climate denialism to folding climate emergency into their politics. So rather than deny that, that climate change is happening, they're beginning to incorporate increasing realization that there is a climate emergency going on to fold that into their politics and, and say, you know, we're going to have to close our borders because there, there are, there's going to be all these migrants trying to come in. We we have to be ready to defend our lifestyle at whatever cost, so on and so forth. I wrote this before uh, the Zetkin Collective's Black Fuel White Mask came out, but I think I was, without the name, I was already gesturing in that text to what they would call fossil fascism uh, as a a very likely uh, political 
outcome of the conjuncture that we find ourselves in, and one that could find a lot of um, of popular support. You write, quote, Of course, the picture that the far-right paints of the present is far from rosy. On the contrary, it is a narrative of war, of slow-building civilizational conflict finally coming to a head. But this is exactly where its perverse rationality lies. For while it on the one hand meets the demand for disavowal by fabulating easier problems with easier solutions, it does not fail, on the other, to acknowledge just how bad things are. In so doing, it speaks to the atmospheric dread of a world haunted by climate change, a stagnating economy, precarization, the lack of democratic oversight and global pandemics much better than most well-meaning liberals would. In what I am calling denialism, disavowing the enormity of the challenges facing humankind is made all the more necessary by the conviction that no major structural transformations are possible. Now, if none of the big variables can change, because a real challenge to those at the top is inconceivable, all that is left for those at the bottom is to fight each other for ever-diminishing scraps, and this is exactly what the alternative reality that the far right puts in place of the disavowed traumatic context prepares its adherents for. It's a really powerful passage. Are we stuck in this perverse situation, then, that the worse things get, the greater the demand for ever more insane denialist right-wing politics becomes, at least and until the left can figure out and propose a plausible and imaginable alternative future, a horizon that's not so dystopic? I mean, I, I regret to say that even then, <laughs> even if, if and when we manage to elaborate that, uh, if anyone has an easy job, if anyone in, in the future, if anyone will tend to have an easy job, it is the far right. And if anyone will have a hard sell to make, it will be the left. Because for a long time, both right and left could count on uh, the association between that you know modern Western thought made between human emancipation and uh, affluence or abundance and you, there's a there's a book by uh, Pierre Charbonnier uh, that came out recently in not too long ago in French and I think maybe just this year in in English that develops precisely this point. You know, for a long time we we th we thought sure the future holds emancipation for uh, mankind for humankind because. The future holds ever more material abundance, but obviously that association is increasingly impossible on a global scale, which makes it for anyone still trying to hold on to that idea it's harder and harder to convince people, which is why, like he was saying uh, a bit earlier, the promises of of neoliberalism now sound very hollow compared to the trust that they elicited in the, or the hope that they could elicit in the nineties. So this fantasy, both a, a, a fantasy or the fantasy and some reality of um, emancipation through affluence is only possible to sustain if we fully accept that, fully accept the need 
for extreme competition more and more in the future. So, you know, if we accept that we'll barricade ourselves and exploit and go to war against whoever uh, we have to in order to sustain our lifestyles and defend it at all costs. We'll also purge the social body of any unwanted elements uh, so that even though resources are dwindling and they will continue to dwindle, there are more resources to go around. So if you, unless you kind of accept a sort of soft landing into the state of nature, which seems to be increasingly what the far right is promising, it's impossible to hold on to this fantasy. And so in a sense, the far right is the last, the last refuge of the association between human emancipation or autonomy and affluence that's been dominant in the uh, Western political imaginary since early modernity. On the other hand, the left, if it remains internationalist, if it continues to take a systemic view on things, is in a, in a position in which it has to say to people, many will have to live with less in material terms so that more can live and will flourish and will find fulfillment in other things than material goods, which is not easy in a world in which for centuries people have associate, associated the fulfillment of human potential with material goods and in which increasingly in, in a fully conscious or in a more diffuse way, people are anxious about loss of status, uh, loss of uh, their livelihoods, present conditions of life, their culture, so on, and, or what they perceive as their culture, so on and so forth. You write, quote, It may well be that one of the reasons why Bolsonaro's popularity went up among the poor, despite his disastrous handling of COVID-19, was that framing the situation as a choice between life and the economy was, for them, objectively true. It showed him as more in touch with their reality than anyone telling them to stay at home when they had no option but to go to work. And then there was also, of course, this Bolsa Familia-style emergency cash transfer that Bolsonaro orchestrated. But you suggest that it's even more than this, that the right is in touch with the deathly vibe of the pandemic at the deepest, at the deepest level, which is not just the pandemic as a biological event, but the pandemic is as expressed materially through the neoliberal reality that we live under. It's neoliberalism from below taking its most morbid turn possible. That was definitely an element in, particularly in Brazil. And I, I would say that one thing that the pandemic showed is that a lot of what is recognized internationally as the Brazilian uh, joie de vivre and um, Brazilian devil may care attitude is in fact deeply nihilistic. It comes from a situation, and, you know, Rio which is where I live, is the place where um, most of most internationally recognized stereotypes about Brazil were formed. And it, it is the place that better corresponds to these stereotypes. 
And in Rio, you can tell that this, you know, the Carioca, the inhabitant of Rio, is famous for this devil-may-care attitude. And this actually comes from a situation of extreme unpredictability, the constant fragility of arrangements, you know, political, economic, labor arrangements, and ultimately of life itself. It's, you know, the most violent city in the country. The drug trade is as violent as the police. The paramilitary militias formed by the police uh, dominate lots, which are very close to uh, Bolsonaro, uh, dominate lots of areas in the city and are as ruthless or even more ruthless than the so-called criminals. And Bolsonaro definitely knew how to play on this. The, the government's plan for the start was not to offer any kind of support so that people were forced to naturalize the pandemic, to naturalize the idea that, well, what am I going to do? I just have to carry on normally because, you know, I still need to feed my family. I still need to go to work. And everyone who supported restrictive measures, as a consequence, would come across as uh, hypocritical and insensitive to the economy and to the plight of common people. So, in fact, the emergency income that was instituted by the government, they didn't want to do that either. They were forced to do that um, by a civil society mobilization and the support of part of the political class. And then eventually they they thought, oh, actually, this could be good for us uh, politically. So maybe we, we stick with it. But definitely their plan was to just play on the idea of, look, it is what it is. There's no alternative. Just carry on. You know, it's a, 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 a form, a Brazilian form of the, the blitz spirit. Just carry on normally because there's nothing we can do uh, about this. And it worked for as long as you could really say there was no alternative. And like I said, in, in this article in um, public books, his popularity after a drop at the start of the pandemic, his popularity actually went up and he was the most popular that he'd been since the start of his mandate. When does that start going down again? And since then, it has just kept going down, even if not as sharply as we would hope. It was only from the moment in which people could look at something and say, okay, there is an alternative here. And the alternative is vaccination. So once there was a vaccine and vaccination had begun in several countries, and then Bolsonaro was seen as uh, sabotaging, actively sabotaging, you know, the, the purchase of vaccines and the vaccination campaign. Then it started to hurt him politically because then the, the discourse according to which, you know, this is all there is, there's, there's nothing we can do. We all have to make sacrifices, which is the default position uh, or the position that neoliberalism defaults to in these situations precisely to justify 
the absence of state intervention. Oh, state intervention would be too costly. It would damage the economy. So I'm sorry, guys, you will all have to take one for the team and endanger your lives and um, the lives of your families. Until there was an alternative in the form of the vaccines, uh, of the vaccine, this discourse actually worked. And now, thankfully, public health uh, system is very popular in in Brazil, and and people hold it as a public utility of the greatest value. Brazil has a good infrastructure to uh, to to do a vaccination campaign, but also a strong uh, vaccination culture. The government's attempts to create some sort of anti-vax movement in Brazil haven't worked at all. And there was Vincent Bevins wrote a text for uh, New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago, pointing out that there's there's lots. He actually interviews a uh, Bolsonarista who says, look, I am a Bolsonarista, but I think he's wrong on this one. I'm not going to, you know, I'm I'm still with him, but he got this one wrong and I'm going to get the the shot and all my friends are Bolsonaristas and they are all going to get the the shot. We might question publicly the the vaccine and work in the sort of gray zone that the far right likes to operate in, where it's like, oh yeah, but you know, there have been other studies that question the validity, or you know, there was this case somewhere where someone died, etc. But they're still getting the shot, thankfully. Can Bolsonarismo survive Bolsonaro? You write, quote, Bolsonarismo is a real convergence of different trends in Brazilian society, with the potential to consolidate itself as a major force for quite some time. But the arrangement of political forces that expresses it is neither coherent nor necessarily stable. In fact, one of its key sources of instability is precisely Bolsonaro and his sons, owing to their divisiveness, shady connections, and constant attacks on potential challengers to their total control of this political capital. That obviously sounds familiar to me here in the U.S. Is Bolsonaro too erratic a figure to lead a right-wing project that requires a sort of seriousness and discipline and ideological coherence that Bolsonaro just lacks? Neither Bolsonaro nor Trump, of course, project the sort of project-building discipline of a Viktor Orban. Is that a weakness? Or given that Bolsonaro seems to thrive on chaos and drama like like Donald Trump, is, is that also where their sort of singular strength as individuals who can embody this broader phenomenon? Is that where it comes from? I think in the case of... Brazil, we're actually, all things considered, I think we've actually been very lucky. We kind of dodged the bullet there because if the person, in fact, Bolsonaro ended up where he is, was the result of a series of contingent factors that produce like this perfect storm of shit um, that put him in, in the place where he is now. And we actually 
were lucky that it was him and not someone else because awful person in every possible sense, as he may be, he's also, he continues to be just a small-time local politician. His political skill is very limited. He doesn't have the either the the news or the the strategic intelligence or the the level of ambition that it would take to really build a hegemonic project. The conditions were all there when when he was sworn in, and lots of people would have jumped on board if he had tried a, a very quick accelerated institutional transformation that would you know put him in a situation like uh, Orban in in Hungary lots of people would have supported him then but he didn't have the vision or if he did have the vision he had absolutely no idea how to get there but also he and his sons remain they they still think like small time political uh, small-time local politicians as political opportunities who are basically trying to ensure that they will retain control over the most part of the largest part of the political capital that was built around the 2018 campaign. On the other hand, we come back to that idea of... um, something that required an operation, a political operation from above to click, but something that once it had clicked was also a very natural coming together of different elements that had a lot in common and were already gravitating towards uh, one another beforehand. This means that if the Bolsonaros lose control of this political capital, there'll be lots of other people who will try to inherit it, to inherit it, and it will probably remain a political force in in Brazil for, I'd say, at least a decade, probably two. Maybe, maybe it won't be strong enough to ever uh, elect a president ever again in and of itself. But still, if you start with, you know, whether this is in the hands, whether the Bolsonarista vote is in the hands of Bolsonaro or whoever else manages to, or one of his children or whoever else manages to to take control of uh, this vote afterwards, if you start a political campaign with something between 12 and 20% of the electorate as your floor, this puts you in a very comfortable position. Maybe you're too divisive to win an election for the executive, but it still puts you in a situation to negotiate, a very good position to negotiate with other political forces and to kind of dictate the the terms of the debate and exercise a, a gravitational pull that you know tends to draw 
the debate towards the far right. So in that sense, from from everything I'm I'm saying, you can you can surely tell that Bolsonaro is more of a Trump figure than an, an Orban figure. There is a very important difference between him and Trump. And he definitely followed Trump's playbook in the sense of, you know, I'm not even going to try and pretend that I'm everyone's president. I am governing for my supporters, those 30%, 20 to 30% who are with me, no matter what. But there is a very important difference, which I am glad to say, glad for us Brazilians, sad for you Americans, that tends to play in our favor, which is the political system. That way of operating, where you, you know, you, you're just concerned with those 20, 30% that are with you, can still be hegemonic in a two-party system. If those 20, 30% are enough for you to take control of one of the major parties, and it clearly is. And because of our alongside our anti-democratic minority rule system that gives Republicans almost sometimes seemingly intractable demographic advantages based on the states within which they're concentrated. Exactly. Exactly. Clearly, the the fight for the lefts, or even not the left, not just the left, but just the, the democratic uh, party, the fight for the lefts and the Democrats' uh, future is, will definitely be around proportional representation and a radical overhaul of the, of the electoral system. Otherwise, the tendency is more and more for, like, to be ruled by uh, perhaps more and more brazenly white supremacist run that still manages to because it controls one of the main parties and because the system is built in such a way that gives them all sorts of, of uh, demographic advantages, they will manage to, to make themselves hegemonic even if they continue to be the numerical minority in, in the country. Earlier we were discussing your argument that denialism creates demand for denialist politics. Does this moment, at least in Brazil and the United States, but also some other places that come to mind, also demand a specifically cartoonish sort of right-wing politics? Like, what do you make? What do we all make of the fact that the right-wing base seems, in so many cases, to demand that their leader be a clown or buffoon or whatever, someone who doesn't have what it takes to do, say, fascism as a real political project? What what does it mean that today's right-wing base so often wants a Trump or a Bolsonaro instead of a Hitler or Pinochet or a Jose Antonio Cast, who is a contrary example, who's the far-right Pinochista who's terrifyingly moving on to a second round in Chile's presidential election, but, you know, who seems like a more competent conventional right-wing figure? I don't think it's just lucky for us that Trump and Bolsonaro are such erratic weirdos or that it's just a coincidence. I Do you agree that there's something that's really constitutive of today's right-wing politics there? Right after Trump won in 2016, I wrote uh, a text, I published a text in, in Brazil 
that was called, I think, the triumph, the triumph of obscenity. And I proposed this category, which is directly connected to the idea of desublimation. And I probably used the word as well in, in the text. Uh, but I, I proposed this category of obscenity to understand figures like, like Trump. And at the time, we were already talking about Bolsonaro. No one imagined he could ever become president, thus proving that we were failing to heed the most important lesson of 2016, which was that, you know, don't ever trust that what you can't imagine can't happen. But the idea was precisely that there is, there was something about that moment that is maybe less strong now. That moment was still uh, the rebound or the hangover from, on the one hand, the 2008 crisis, on the other hand, the 2011 cycle of protest or the wave of social unrest that began to a great extent in response to the, the crisis and the, the recession that followed in the, the wave that began in 2011. Once that was defeated, I think that really reinforced the, the feeling of this anti-political, in the second sense of the word, feeling that had already been created by two, the 2008 crisis that, you know, Fuck this. The, the, the system is completely rigged. They're all the same. They're all a bunch of technocrats who don't care about, about us, who are in the pockets of corporations and, and financial institutions. And at that, that moment was, which came later in Brazil because the economic crisis hit here uh, much later and, and the protests in Brazil, it happened only in 2013, 2014. There was a moment there in which the less you looked like a professional politician, the more viable you were as a political proposition. And these buffoonish characters, and this worked in, in the favor of Bernie as well, not in the sense that Bernie was uh, a buffoon, although he does have that sort of avuncular, cranky old man charm that certainly worked in his favor. But in the sense that, you know, he was suddenly you, you had this person who'd been in Congress forever without anyone noticing, who was saying the quiet parts out loud. And that was the appeal in, in all these figures in very different ways, that they, they, that they were all figures that were saying the quiet parts out loud. And in that way, they were obscene because they went against all the media training and all the conventions of 90s uh, centrism that had been dominant from the Clinton era up until the middle of the last decade. So I think there's definitely, maybe, maybe less so now, but, and it seems like the, the far-right figures that have appeared since are 
more sinister, which may also mean that they are more competent than these buffoonish uh, figures that the US and Brazil got were. But yeah, there was definitely a moment where that was the kind of figure that would work. I want to close out by talking about Brazilianization. Alex Hochuli writes, quote, The West's involution finds its mere image in the original country of the future, the nation doomed forever to remain the country of the future, the one that never reaches its destination, Brazil. The Brazilianization of the world is our encounter with a future denied, and in which this frustration has become constitutive of our social reality. While the closing of historical horizons has often been a leftist, indeed Marxist, concern, the sense that things don't work as they should is now widely shared across the political spectrum. Indeed, this story of regression is now perhaps most conspicuous in the global north, which today is demonstrating many of the features that have plagued the global south not just inequality and informalization of work, but increasingly venal elites, political volatility, and social ungluing. Is the rich world not also becoming modern but not modern enough, but in reverse? What what do you make of the fact that so many in the global north now look to Brazil to understand what seems to be our own bleak political, social, and ecological future, or perhaps better put, lack of a future? Well, because we're it, we are the future. <laughs> it's this, uh, this piece by Alex is, it took me a while to, to read it when it came out, but it's a really brilliant idea. It's one of those ideas that are extremely clever. And at the same time, when you see someone do it, you're like, why didn't this occur to me? Because it's very simple, but incredibly smart to compare what what Brazilian thinkers have said about Brazilian Brazilianization to what uh, thinkers in the global north or the developed world or however you want to call it uh, have said about the same subject, and it's it's really a fascinating juxtaposition, and it's a great it's a great piece. And yet, I mean, what are you going to say? Brazil is a large-scale experiment in what happens when you try to make extreme contradictions coexist without resolution, and you just postpone, postpone indefinitely the resolution of those contradictions so that you have forever this extreme combination of the archaic and the ultra-modern, like every peripheral society, of course, but at a much more extreme scale because Brazil is much bigger in size, but also in economy, population, everything. And yeah, what happens, turns out, who knew, turns out that what happens if you don't solve those contradictions the the, um, developed world seems to be discovering now is in a sense that you start sliding back from the modern to the archaic. If you don't solve those contradictions, the many of the things that you might have judged were permanent conquests of 
the working class, but society as as a whole in terms of uh, you know institutional stability, for example, many of those things may start sliding back, and what you you will end up getting is not you know ever more modernity and ever more justice and ever more freedom, but actually a slide back towards the situation in which the periphery of the capitalist uh, world system has always found in itself, which was position as a, a, a Brazilian sociologist, which I think Alex cites in that text. The Brazilian sociologist Chico de Oliveira called it a platypus, you know, this weird thing that combines, this weird Frankenstein monster that combines bits from different eras and different sources into a delightfully dysfunctional whole. So welcome to Brazil, everyone. Well, Rodrigo Nunes, thank you very much. Thank you. Apologies for the sound of that leaf blower at the end there. Rodrigo Nunes is a professor of modern and contemporary philosophy at the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro, PUC Rio, and the author of Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization, which came out earlier just this year from Verso. I have linked to some of Rodrigo's work that we discuss in this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after looking into what conditions made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tumuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you just telling other people about the show, why you like it, why they will like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.